Well, good morning again. Luke 21, verses 5 through 38. And as I mentioned a minute ago, this is a a big, difficult text that I probably uh, could have uh, broken up into two separate sermons. Um, And uh, depending on how we do with time, that might have to happen. And as I said a minute ago, it also may engender more questions and answers, but we, as we move through Luke, we have to, take, we have to go where the text leads us, and so uh, we are uh, talking about a huge chunk of Scripture that I've entitled just Luke's Apocalypse. It's Luke's version of the Apocalypse. So let's start in verse 5. Hear the word of God. <clears throat> and while some were speaking of the temple... How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I'm going to reread that with, I think, the emphasis that Jesus probably used. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Alas means like unfortunately. It's a, a very strong way to say, you know, this is bad, this is not good. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear. And with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. I pray now, O God, we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that we may faithfully handle this passage of Scripture It is complex and um, has the potential to confuse us. And so we pray, O God, for the spirit of wisdom and understanding that we might be edified by this sure word of prophecy. If it's in Scripture, it's there for a reason, and it behooves us to wrestle and grapple with it. Lord, edify us through it, that you may be glorified in us, and that the glory of Jesus may live in us as we're changed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for about the last 175 years, America, well, American Christians, but America as a nation, we've been infatuated, sort of, with the end of the world. Just kind of infatuated, kind of a a fanatic preoccupation with the apocalyptic. And this infatuation with the end of the world is something that grew out of the last Great Awakening in the early to mid-1800s. So if you know anything about the history of the First and Second Great Awakening in America, the First Great Awakening, which took place in the early 1700s, appeared to be a genuine move of the Spirit where preachers like George Whitfield traveled the American frontier on horseback preaching a genuine message of faith and repentance. And many people came to Christ. So people who were, you know, kind of culturally Christian recognized they didn't really have, um, you know, they didn't have personal faith. We're hearing a message of faith and repentance. And, and about 100 years later, there was another big movement like that. And we call it the Second Great Awakening, but, but it's characterized by something much different. It was characterized by what we call millenarianism or millennialism. And it was a movement that was preoccupied with immunitizing or bringing in the millennium, kind of a golden age where Christ sets up his reign on earth. And it was this desire to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. One expert writes, The Second Great Awakening reflected romanticism, characterized by enthusiasm, emotion, and an appeal 
to the supernatural, and it rejected the rationalism and deism of the Enlightenment. This revival enrolled millions of new members in existing evangelical denominations and led to the formation of new denominations, many believing that the awakening heralded this millennium age, millennial age. The Second Great Awakening stimulated the establishment of many reform movements designed to remedy the evils of society before the anticipated second coming of Christ. And this preoccupation in the early to mid-1800s led to the formation of all sorts of new denominations. Some of them were cults. The Latter-day Saints, the Church of Mormon, comes out of this age, this era. So were the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah Witnesses, and the Second-day Adventists. All of these groups formed with their sole purpose of helping usher in this new millennial age. And so a lot of errors came out of this preoccupation with a golden age and the second coming of Christ. And traditional Bible-believing Christians were not immune either. Churches got into the prediction game. In fact, we've kind of been at it. It's sort of dying out now. But we've kind of been at this game for about the last 150 to last 175 years where Orthodox Christians... Are, have, have predicted you know, the end of the world. In fact, all of us are familiar with the image of some guy on the street corner with an, wearing an A-frame sign over his body that says, the end is near, right? I mean, we've seen it a million times, and I mean, it's, it's to the point where it's something that people joke about. And secular people have caught on to this fervor, and even the movies have created somewhat of a cottage industry of end-of-the-world movies. You know, they're apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic movies. You can think of, you know, the zombie apocalypse is the most recent iteration of that. But there is, you know, the Armageddon movie with Bruce Willis, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, or the movie I Am Legend. I mean, it's become just a part of our popular culture. And now it's to the point where it is completely dislodged from any religious fervor whatsoever, And that kind of of end-of-the-world apocalypticism is embraced now by even environmentalists who are saying, we better better, uh, get with taking care of the environment or the world's going to end. And there are even movies. And so it's it's spread. It's it's, It's completely engulfed our culture. Now, why do I mention all this? I mention all this because a wrong reading of a text like this can launch people and launch us in all kinds of weird directions, all kinds of weird trajectories if we're not careful. And the question for us is, have we possibly misread these apocalyptic texts in the New Testament? You have to ask that question for yourself personally. Have we read those passages egocentrically? You might say, well, what do you mean by that? Have we, so convinced of our own self-importance, read those texts in a way where we import ourselves into this text because we are unable to imagine ourselves living at any other time than the climax of history? It's a question. Have we read these texts in such a way that we we see ourselves in them? We we see the text reflecting our our own world. Political events, and oh, it's, 
because we possibly maybe are unable to believe that we are living at any other time than the climax of history. It's a natural thing we do. We read the text egocentrically. Well, I'm, try to, I'm going to try to answer this morning some of those questions from this passage, and I don't know that I'll be successful, but I'm going to, to try. That's some, some of them may say that's a really bad way to set up a sermon. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but um, it's a big text, and we're just going to, to move through it the best we can. And I want to I front load our time. We've got, um, <clears throat> we've got really 15, 20 minutes. Uh, front load this time simply by saying that there are a lot of good pastors and scholars and interpretations throughout church history and even recent times that see things differently. And I'm going to share with you what I believe is biblically uh, the most faithful. So number one, the first point we're going to look at is uh, false Christs and false predictions. The people are standing around the temple, and in 19 to 20 BC, so this is maybe uh, some time, not maybe, but uh, 20, 30, 50 years before Jesus, King Herod started this refurbishing process to expand the temple grounds and put all sorts of money and resources into the temple. And the temple was grand. It was covered in gold plates. And it was made of pure white marble covered in gold, real gold plating, that from 15 or 20 miles as you came up over uh, Jericho, you could see Jerusalem off in the distance and the sunlight shining off of the gold plates of the temple. It was really one of the wonders of the ancient world And it was a source of national pride for the Jews and for Israel. It was their socio-religious and political center of their universe. That's important. Remember that. It was the center of their universe. And so Jesus' emphatic declaration, where he predicts the temple's complete and total annihilation, was stunning. Because this was the center of their world, the very dwelling place of God, and Jesus says, as they're admiring it, look at how beautiful the temple is, he says, you know, not one stone is going to be left standing upon another. A shocking, shocking revelation, a shocking thing for Jesus to say. And the disciples among the crowd respond, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of that, that these things are about to happen? And Jesus gives two warnings. <clears throat> The first warning is, don't be led astray by anyone saying they're me. Anyone saying that they're Jesus. Anyone coming in my name or acting like they're me. Now, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, lists that around this time, in and around Jerusalem and Israel, there were no less than 15 people with the name Jesus. Very common name, because it's really just the Latinized version of um, Joshua. Very common name, so you could see how uh, there's all these Jesuses around. Apparently there was a shortage on boys' names in those days. But there was many people with the name Jesus. And even if people didn't have the name Jesus, there were people who were pretending or acting or thought they were Christs or Messiahs, saviors of the people. And the most famous of this person is a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba, who after Jerusalem's destruction in A.D. 70, another 70 years later, led this revolt, and they all thought that this now God is going to destroy the Romans. And the Romans killed Simon Bar Kokhba and his followers and completely decimated Israel once and for all. 
And not only in Jesus' day, but even to this day, it seems like such a simple warning, right? Oh, hey, don't, don't follow anyone who says they're me. I mean, even the last 30 years, people have gone around saying, I'm the, the second coming of Christ, and they have followers. You know, and you would think, well, I mean, just, it says right here not to follow people like that. But people always get tripped up. And that speaks to our longing for someone to give us answers. Because our culture is anxious. Our culture longs for someone to say, here is the answer to the world's problems. The problem with that, of course, is the answer's already been given to us in the Savior, Jesus, but people have been led astray with all sorts of different winds of doctrine. G.K. Chesterton said, when men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. So it makes sense where some charlatan can show up on the scene speaking some new, you know, reinvented version of messiahship, and people would follow that person. So it's a prediction for Jesus' time and for our time also. And the second aspect of that is he says, don't listen to people saying the time is at hand. So don't follow after people who say, I'm Jesus, or I'm the, I'm the Christ, I'm the, I'm the Savior. The second warning Jesus says is, don't get all worried and worked up by people who says the time is at hand. That's what he says. Don't don't be anxious when people say the end is near. Don't don't do it, he says. Don't get caught up in the date predicting or align yourself with date predictors or people who are talking, always talking about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, it says what we believe. It goes back to the second century, and it says we believe and hope for the return of the Lord, the consummation of the ages, the judgment of the dead and the living, and the eternal reward of the saints. But it doesn't say anything about the imminent return of Christ. And here's why this is important. The word imminent denotes that the person talking about an imminent return of Christ knows something about the timing of Christ's return. And the church historically has never been willing to do that. Historically, the church has said, We look forward one day to the return of Christ, but never tries to make any predictions or any statements about the nearness of that event. And that's important. Because time and time and time again, generation after generation has proven to us that any notion of the imminent return of Christ seems to always fail. You know, you say, well, can't imminent have a bigger meeting? No, it can't. If you're at the airport with with the CIA and you say, we are expecting the imminent arrival of the president, you do not 200 years later still have the CIA waiting at the airport if he doesn't show up. That is not what the word imminent means. Imminent means any minute, any second. And we can look back even in recent decades and see how people have been led astray with this any second idea of Christ's return. Could the Lord return any second? Sure. Will he? Who knows? That's why you can't emphasize that or follow people who are always saying the end is near, the end is near, the end is near. Um, the second point in this text is verses 10, 19, the persecution coming on the disciples. And Jesus talks about nation rising against nation and earthquakes in various places and kind of just um, world troubles. And <clears throat> This seems like a really general statement about conflict in general in the world. 
But Jesus is really getting at something that is going on right in his time. And it's a time of trouble in the first century that is swirling around Jerusalem and the temple. Remember, Jesus, at this time in his ministry, he's come into the city. It's the last week of his life. And he is preaching at the temple and from the temple. And the temple is the object of God's wrath on the nation of Israel because they've rejected the message of Jesus. They've rejected the gospel. And this is what Jesus says in verse 12. Before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues. But get this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And Jesus sees the persecution, the backlash that's coming against the disciples, not just as a bad thing, but as an opportunity for the disciples to shine in their faith. And this is also a message, not just for people in the first century, but for people like us today living in the 21st century. And Jesus sees the rise of persecution, an onslaught of attack against people who preach Jesus, who have faith in Christ and live out their faith as actually God using for good in that it is in those times of persecution that the faith of God's people shines the brightest. <clears throat> you know what the, 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 word, the word where we get witness from is the Greek word martyr. We think, oh, well, martyr means someone who gives their life and dies for a cause. It can mean that, but the Greek word in the New Testament for witness is martyr. Well, that's, that's instructive for us. Because even if it's not the literal giving of our lives in death, it is a giving of our life for the cause of Christ, even if we stay alive. And for the most part, Christians do stay alive. But it is still a giving of our life to witness to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so persecution, Jesus tells the disciples, is not, just, it's not only a bad thing, it's an opportunity to bear witness. And he promises them that their endurance will end in life, life eternal. He says, you'll be hated for all by my you'll be hated by all for my name's sake in verse 19, but by your endurance you will gain your lives. As you endure and stay, remain steadfast in the face of persecution, you'll gain your lives. You'll gain eternal life. <clears throat> in fact, the Bible says, whoever endures to the very end, the same will be saved. We're not just saved at a moment where we pronounce our faith in Christ. Yes, we're saved. But the idea is that God is keeping his people through every trial and conflict and wave of persecution and that they're kept all the way through it. He told the church in Revelation in Smyrna, be faithful unto death. The idea is not you're faithful for a while, then you stop, the job is done. But that faithfulness never stops, and for some, it results in literal death. And that's just a small number of people. But the idea is that persecution is an opportunity for us to bear witness. It's an opportunity to bear witness. We are living martyrs, and some of us are dying martyrs. At our General Assembly in Memphis, our denomination, we called up all of our missionaries. There must have been 30 people on the stage and they had them all take a vow of their commitment to the faith and willingness to die for Christ. And they all said, we 
we vow. We commit our lives to this cause and we're willing to die. And some of them were missionaries in different parts of the world. And that's a part of the missionary call. Planting your, your, your feet and your life and your flag on the name of Jesus Christ and be willing to die. That was, it was impressive. It, was, it sent a chill up my spine. I thought, these are people who are willing to die for the faith. <clears throat> Listen, persecution is an authenticating mark of your faith. And it may seem like an abstract concept for a lot of us because, well, frankly, not many of us experience persecution. And that has a lot to do with how vocal we are um, with our faith. The more vocal you become, the more persecution will come. Now, that's not to say that Satan doesn't attack us. He does. But open persecution is often the result of sharing our faith. And persecution, when we are faithful witnesses, it's also it's one of the authenticating marks that we belong to God And here's a couple of verses. 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14.22, So we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So when persecution, hardship, and trial arise, don't think you've done something wrong. Actually, it's the result of walking faithfully with Jesus. Number three, The devastation of Jerusalem is predicted. This is verses 20 to 33. Jesus tells them before, stand firm, but when you see Jerusalem's um, desolation coming near, flee. Why does, on one hand, Jesus tell the disciples to stay firm in your faith, even when you're persecuted, because it's an opportunity for you to bear witness, but when you see the destruction of Jerusalem coming, Flee to the mountains. One is the attack of Satan against God's people, persecution. The other is the wrath of God coming on the city of Jerusalem. And God is telling, Jesus is telling his disciples, when you see it happen, this isn't the result of Satan, this is the result of God's wrath. Get out of the city. And if you've read the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who was a part of the Roman-Jewish War and then became kind of a turncoat with the Romans and wrote a first-century history of what happened. He tells you of, of the story of the conflict when Jerusalem and its inhabitants, after the death and ascension of Jesus, rebelled against Rome's power and all of these warring, zealot religious factions broke off to control the city. And Rome slowly sent six legions of soldiers to surround Jerusalem. And there was a break when they changed generals. One general's name was Cestius, and the guy who replaced him was a guy named Vespasian. His son was Titus. And in that break, they allowed people in the city, if they didn't want to be a part of the conflict, to leave. And so they fled to the mountains. They crossed the Jordan River and went into what's now Jordan, into the area of Pella, that area of Jordan, which you can still visit today. And they recognized the disciples, Christians, people who were followers of Jesus. Some 37 years later, they remembered Jesus' words that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Flee to the mountains. For these are the days of God's vengeance in which all that is written will be fulfilled. And just like that, it happened. 37 years later, within a generation's time, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies, and everyone who chose to stay in Jerusalem was like a bird in a cage, shut up. You know, 
shut up like a bird in a cage as the, you couldn't leave the city, and the city descended into chaos, and Josephus writes about it. I won't go into the gruesome, bloody details now, but it is horrific. I mean, it is one of the worst horrors of history you will ever read. <clears throat> and Jesus tells them to flee because this is God's judgment on the unbelieving. And he says in verse 23, Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those nursing, in those days there's going to be a great distress upon the earth or the land, wrath against this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led, be led captive among the nations. <clears throat> and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, these pagan nations that God is using to judge Jerusalem. And if you're listening to Jesus' words at this time, you could not help, if you are an observant Jew, to hearken back to the time of prediction and prophecy in the book of Ezekiel when the Babylonians were marching towards Jerusalem. If you know your history... Jerusalem fell in 598 B.C. by the Babylonians. And it's this mirror image, this kind of resuscitation of prophetic language of God's judgment on Jerusalem and the nation as he uses the pagan nations as his instrument of wrath. Sometimes God uses wicked people to judge people. And in our lives, by way of application, sometimes God uses unbelievers to chastise us when we are unfaithful. And that's hard because we automatically want to think that everyone who messes with us is an enemy of God, and God does judge those pagan nations, but often God allows wicked people as instruments to chasten us when we become rebellious against him. It's a lesson, it's a timeless lesson but it is what was happening in those days. And as I said before, the language is right out of Ezekiel. In Luke 21, 25, he says, there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. People fainting with fear, foreboding of what is coming on the world or the land. I keep making that distinction because the Greek word there can be translated either way, the world or the land. For the powers... <coughs> of the heavens will be shaken. Now, I have a quote here, I'm not going to read it, but it's by the first century Roman historian Tacitus, where he basically says that during this time, he has no agenda to corroborate any biblical narrative, he's not even a believer, but he writes that during this time, there was disasters, terrible battles, civil wars, horrible, horrible times, four emperors falling by the sword, I guess I'm just reading it anyway, Four emperors who fell by the sword. Three civil wars, more foreign wars. Both at the same time, he says, the region was distressed with disasters. Unknown before or after the lapse of the ages. This is a secular historian writing about this time. Besides the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth. Josephus writes, during this time in the first century, there was a comet that you could see above Jerusalem in, in, the, in, the, in space, in the skies, that lasted for a whole year. At one point, Josephus writes of the destruction of the temple. He says that many who were present heard a voice rushing out of the doors of the temple saying, we are leaving this place. It's a powerful, powerful image of catastrophe that 
came upon Jerusalem and Israel. Now the question that we should ask, and I only have a few minutes left, but the question that we should ask is, is Jesus using the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple to give us a view or a glimpse into the end of the world? Is that what this is about? That Jesus is really giving us kind of like a a microcosmic apocalypse to say something about an apocalypse that's coming one day down the road? Is that what's happening? Well, for um, a lot of people, this is their primary text that talks about the apocalypse and the end of all things. And even if you look at the very next verse, it says, um, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And they reason that clearly this hasn't happened yet, so this must be a reference to the future coming of Jesus when he returns bodily and physically to the earth. And we might agree categorically with that statement, except if we read the very next verse, verse 29, it says, and he told them a parable about the fig tree. You've all heard this before, probably. When you see the fig tree maturing, it produces its leaves, and you know that it's in season and summer is already near. And so Jesus tells the people standing right in front of them, so also when you see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. The fulcrum point of this entire passage is the phrase, this generation. And what Jesus is getting at is that the generation standing in front of him are going to witness these signs and events. And it's going to be the heralding of the coming of the kingdom. And if you're a first century Jew and you hear that Jerusalem and the temple is about to be destroyed, it is the end of the world for you. It's the end of your world. You're not thinking, well, clearly, he must be talking about some time, two, three thousand years in the future. You're thinking, the end of my world is going to happen soon. It sounds like, and it is, the end of your world. Whenever Jesus uses... The, the phrase, this generation, he's almost always speaking of contemporaries. He says to the people asking for a sign, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. In another place he says, to what shall I compare this generation? He's always talking about the people in front of him. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Talking again about his contemporaries, people on the street, right in front of him. And then finally, he says, forever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This entire section of Scripture, that phrase, this generation, is the subject matter. All those prophecies, the disasters, the catastrophes that Jesus is predicting is going to happen on that generation. Now, what does this mean for us who are living 21 centuries later and we have anxiety about the world we live in, which often seems to be a mirror image of some of the predictions that Jesus gave about nations against nations, 
Kingdoms against kingdoms. Well, here's what we can be assured of. That in the same way that God's power was manifested against the rebellion of the world at that time, and those predictions and prophecies came to pass, we can be assured that every word of prophecy in all of Scripture will one day come to pass. And that just as God dealt faithfully with his people and judged the wicked and the rebellious with absolute certainty that there will be a day coming on this earth, the consummation of all of the ages, when God finally eradicates evil and the powers and the dark forces in this world once and for all. Jesus will return in power. This is a sign to us of the faithfulness of God. That as he faithfully judged the rebellious and blessed the righteous and caused through that catastrophe the kingdom of God to come in, God will ultimately set up an eternal kingdom that will last for all of eternity where all wickedness and unrighteousness and rebellion and every vile sin will be put down and vanquished. The kingdom of God came with power. There was an end. It wasn't the end of the physical globe. It was the end of that old covenant order, which for Jews thought would last forever. The law and the prophets. And the new covenant was ushered in. And that for us spells not wrath and curse, but blessing and grace. God's acts of judgment are never absolute in and of themselves. They're always meant to bring about and yield something better. Judgment isn't for its own sake. It's meant to vanquish that which hinders or prevents God's good plan for this world and for his people. We can be sure that God's word stands true. The heavens and the earth will pass away, but not one word written will pass away. God's good and sure word and promises to us will come to pass, just as it came to pass in the first century. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now that there is a word of hope and encouragement, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of wrath, even when you judge the dark forces of the world and the powers of Satan, you are revealing your loving grace and power for your people. And ultimately, you will establish an eternal kingdom on earth, the inauguration of which happened in the first century, and you will more and more bring it to pass. And as we look for the day when you return, O God, bodily, in the person of your Son, we pray that you make us faithful, that we are able to endure every trial. We see persecutions as an opportunity for us to bear witness. We don't lose hope, nor are we led astray by false Christs and pretenders and charlatans, but rather, O God, that you would preserve us in faith and in faithfulness as we wait for you. Strengthen us in our hearts and in our minds, Lord God, to endure every trial for the glory of your name and for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.